And many thanks to our combined team from Cornerstone and Soul Church for leading us with such wonderful songs today. If I haven't met you, my name's Campbell, pastor here at, at Cornerstone Presbyterian. It's, it's great to, to gather together with our, our daughter church, though the daughter's really grown up and um, so we're really partner churches now, Soul and, and Cornerstone, and it's good to be together this morning. And I'm going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, then please open to Matthew chapter 27. And if you're visiting today, a, a warm welcome to you. If you don't have a church that you normally attend, then we invite you to join us at uh, Soul Church, 4.30pm here on Sunday afternoons. Cornerstone Church meets here at 10am on Sunday mornings, though not for long. And, uh, but as I, as I keep saying, just keep coming here until you're here otherwise, but uh, we'll be shifting venues sometime in May. So here we are in Matthew chapter 27. And as you know, over the last 20 years or so, there's been a strong push to change BC and AD, which means before Christ and Anno Domini, the, the year of our Lord, to what? To uh, BCE and CE, meaning before the Common Era and after the Common Era. Have you come across that? If you spend any time on Wikipedia, you'll know that there has been a push to change BC, AD to CE and BCE. And whenever I see CE or BCE, I always want to ask, well, from what date did CE begin? From what date did the so-called common era begin? And the answer to that question is, well, it began with Christ, <laughs> with, with, with Jesus. And so my next question is, so why did we change it then? Isn't it completely unnecessary to change BC and AD to these, these new terms? Not only is it unnecessary, but it's not nearly as clear as the old one, is it? The old one was, was much more clear. We don't have, that, have to ask that other question. Well, what actually happened at that time? What distinguishes the, the common era from the time before? It's almost as though certain historians would prefer that Christ, that Jesus, not be recognised in the dating system. It's almost as though certain historians would like to erase him from the history. Another anecdote. I knew a young man, a very zealous Christian man, so enthusiastic. He married a wonderful Christian woman and he was even thinking of going to Bible college. And then his brother gave him a book and this book uh, had about 20 chapters written by atheists explaining why a person should not believe in Jesus. And I read this book and it was full of the most abject nonsense. It was just rubbish. It really was. It was so badly argued. Uh, the reasons given for not believing in Jesus were such bad reasons. Yet this young man that I knew lapped it up and overnight gave up his Christian faith. And I was asked to this day, why on earth did he throw away his Christian faith after reading such nonsense? It's almost as though 
he didn't want to believe in Jesus. It's almost as though he wanted to erase Jesus and he was just looking for that reason, looking for that excuse to do that. One more anecdote. And this concerns all those who call themselves Christians here. How many times have we looked at an unbeliever and looked at how uh, they live their lives, how they don't have to care about Jesus, they don't have to care about what Jesus thinks about them, about us or what we do. And how many times have we looked at the unbeliever with just a trace of envy? If only I could live in such a carefree way. They don't have someone always looking over their shoulder. Maybe life would be easier and happier if I didn't have Jesus always looking over my shoulder. And there's something in us, isn't there, that perhaps also would like to erase Jesus from our lives and from our thinking. And that is the common factor in each of these three cases. The historians, the young friend from the past, all of us, there is something in us Apparently a deep-seated desire that Jesus not exist. And as we look at Matthew chapter 27, Matthew unveils this desire. He shows us a universal recognition of Jesus' innocence and yet a deep determination to destroy him and to erase him. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 27. A universal recognition of his innocence, but at the same time a completely contradictory desire that he be erased and removed. Because as we look at Matthew 27, we see in the first few verses that the very man who betrayed Jesus believed that he was entirely innocent. Look there at verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. The very man who betrayed Jesus believed that he was entirely innocent and he was full of remorse for what he had done. And next we see that the chief priests and the elders also knew that Jesus was innocent because When Judas told them, I've betrayed innocent blood, what should they have done? They should have said, well, this is terrible. We need to reopen this case. We need to revisit this. The man who who said that he was guilty is now saying that he's innocent. But they did nothing of the kind. They said, well, what's that to us? What's that to us, Judas, that you think that, that Jesus was innocent? That's your responsibility. They knew, they knew that Jesus was entirely 
innocent. And then as we go through Matthew 27, we see that Jesus himself knew that he was innocent. Look there at verse 12. When Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem, asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. And there's two things going on there. First of all, we see Jesus giving himself to be sacrificed. That's why, one reason why, he didn't defend himself because he was giving himself to be sacrificed. Isaiah predicted that, didn't he? Isaiah 53. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. That's one reason why Jesus did not defend himself. But a second reason is this. He had no charge to answer. He had no charge to answer in the first place. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Now, can, can you imagine anyone else on earth being able to say those words? Could, could, could anyone here stand up and say, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? without knowing the answer to that question. But Jesus knew that he was entirely innocent. Pontius Pilate knew that the chief priests knew that Jesus was innocent. Did you follow that? Pilate knew that the chief priests knew that Jesus was innocent. Look there at verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And Barabbas, Mark's Gospel, Luke's Gospel tell us that he was a known terrorist and murderer. And so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, who is called the Christ? And Matthew comments here, For he, Pilate, knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And and so what Pilate was trying to do here, he was trying to force them to release Jesus by giving them this ridiculous choice. Okay, it's the custom to release one man. Here's Barabbas. Everyone knows he's an insurrectionist, a terrorist, Everyone knows he's murdered people and here's Jesus, the Christ. And everyone knows he's innocent. He was trying to force them because he knew that they knew that Jesus was innocent. So he was trying to force them to choose to release the innocent man. But, verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? 
Pilate asked, and they all answered, Crucify him. Even Pontius Pilate's wife knew that Jesus was innocent. And Matthew inserts a single sentence. In one sentence, he paints a very pathetic picture. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, while the Roman governor was sitting on the judge's seat about to give his sentence to Jesus, his wife sent him this message. You you, you can read between the lines here. A frantic message is sent to Pontius Pilate by his wife. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. That righteous man, that's how it could also be translated. For I have suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. Even Pontius Pilate's wife has revealed to her in a dream the innocence and the righteousness of Jesus. And Pilate himself, of course, he knew that Jesus was innocent because when the, the, the crowd called for his crucifixion, what does Pilate say in verse 23? Why? Why? What crime has he committed? Well, that could be translated, what evil has he done? What bad thing has this man Jesus done? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. Why did he wash his hands? I know he's innocent. I'm convinced he's innocent. I'm washing my hands of this. I'm distancing myself from what is about to happen. That's what Pilate was doing. And even the the crowd knew that Jesus was innocent because when Pilate says, why should I crucify him, what reasons do they give? What reasons do they give to Pilate for Jesus' crucifixion? He's saying, why should I crucify? At that moment, they should have said, well, here's the reasons. This is what he's done to deserve death. But what do they say? How do they reply for Pilate's demand for evidence? Crucify him, Pilate. Never mind the evidence. Just kill him. Just erase him. Just get rid of him. As Matthew 27 unfolds, there is a, do you see that, 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 that terrible distinction between a man of complete innocence, perfection and righteousness, and such a determination to kill him, to erase him. And the world ever since has known about the innocence of Jesus. One of my, one of the, uh, the teachers I appreciated most, Mr. Kennedy in year seven. Maybe he'll hear this on the, on the internet. <laughs> You're a great teacher, Mr. Kennedy. And whenever someone said, I didn't do it, because teachers hear that all the time, right? Teachers, yes. 
uh, something happens in the classroom. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And he would always say, there was only one perfect man. That was his reply. There was only one perfect man. And that's all he had to say. And we all knew that he was talking about Jesus Christ. A state school, but we all knew. He didn't have to explain because the whole culture knew about the innocence of Jesus. And for 2,000 years, people have been trying to stain the name of Jesus with some kind of wrongdoing and it never, ever sticks. It always fails. The innocence of Christ has stood the test of time and always will. Until the world ends, no accusation will stand against God's Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, that determination to kill him, to erase him, they chose a known terrorist to go free. If only that Jesus be destroyed. In fact, they were so determined that he'd be destroyed that they called down curses on themselves and upon their children. Let his blood be on us and on our children. What a terrible, terrible curse to call down upon yourself. If he is innocent, let his blood be on us and on our children. That is a a terrifying thing to have to say. And it shows you the determination that they had to destroy him. The chief priests and the elders, the crowd, humanity ever since, would prefer that he not be there. In fact, with the crowd in Matthew's Gospel, whenever you read the crowd, who are you seeing? It's a mirror, you see. In the crowd, Matthew says, that's you, that's me, that's all of us. Because the sad thing is, and, and Matthew knows this, that if we had been there on Jerusalem on, on that day, what would we have said? His own disciples fled. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We sing it. We sing it because it's in the Bible. Because Matthew holds up a mirror that if you and I had been there among the crowd, would we have said anything different? No. Why? That's the question, isn't it? Why? Why? Why has the world wanted to erase this man, Jesus Christ, in whatever clumsy way it's tried to do it? Well, the Apostle John tells us in chapter 3, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds be exposed. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, the world hates me, he said. The world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. That's the reason. If there is any desire in us that Jesus not be there, that he be erased, it's because the Bible says he testifies that what we do is evil. No one likes being told off. And you know when I especially don't like being told off? When it's true. When the accusation is true. That's when it it especially angers me. You can tell me off, but if I know it's true, (laughs) something rises up within me. Israel Folau's post. I'm not going to enter into that whole argument of whether he did the right thing, the wrong thing, the clumsy thing, but one thing is for certain. No one likes being told that they are sinful. And the list of sinful people that he put up, it was from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a list that embraces us all. And no one likes it. No one likes it. We never have. And the Bible puts its finger on our heart here and says, the reason you resist Jesus, the reason why the world would like to erase him, it's because he showed us our hearts and our evil and we don't like it. But I finish by saying, the only reason Jesus showed us our sin. And and, and this is the huge mistake the world makes. The world says, well, look at Jesus. He's so judgmental. He's so awful. He tells me I'm sinful and that makes me feel bad. And so if he's saying something that makes me feel bad, then he must be a very cruel person. He must be a sadistic person. He must enjoy watching me squirm. That's why Jesus tells me that I do bad things. No, The doctor tells you you've got cancer and you need chemotherapy. Do you turn around and say, well, you're just being cruel. You're making me feel bad. No, because we know he's telling us the truth for our good. And the only reason Jesus ever exposed the sin of the world was for our good, that we would see the disease that we would know what's killing us and crippling us and destroying our futures. And he not only showed us the disease, but he made himself the cure. He gave himself to free us and to cure us. In fact, look at Matthew 27 and you will see that the very means that the world used to silence him were the very means that God used to heal us. Isn't that extraordinary? That's how amazing God is.
the exact things that we did to try to silence Jesus, the scourging, the, the nails through the hands and the feet, the spear in his side, all intended to destroy him, to silence him, to erase him, those very things were the things that God used to heal me and to heal you. The blood of Christ, which takes away our sin and the punishment for our sin. That's how amazing God is. That's how loving he is. And so, although many attempts have been made to erase Jesus, and we might even attempt this in our own clumsy way, he never will be. He never will be. He remains. His words remain. His condemnation of our sin remains. And his offer of redemption remains. And so, instead of being angry... Let's love him. Let's praise him. Let's thank him. Let's humble ourselves and adore him. Most of all, let's entrust our lives and our future to him. He's good and perfect and he came to save us. Let me pray. Yes, Heavenly Father, we do see ourselves in that crowd. We're ashamed to see ourselves in that crowd, joining with those mocking voices. And Father, we, we, we thank you that you've turned our hearts around and that we've seen the truth about Jesus. And we love him. And we see that he came not to hurt us, but to heal us. And he came not to condemn us, but to give us life. And so, Father, we pray that you continue to, to humble us. and to, We pray that our hearts will continue to reach out to your Son. And today, we praise him for his sacrifice of himself, for our sins. We thank you that he's set us free by his death. We thank you that he's given us life. Amen. Thanks, Mr.